Hey, how's it going, Champagne Sharks? Hope everyone's doing well. Just wanted to uh, do some quick house cleaning, let people know. Go to ChampagneSharks.com and you get access to all the links related to Champagne Sharks. You can go there and find it all. And you can find where we are on social media, our products, all that stuff. Also, Patreon benefits, which includes Discord server, book club night, movie night discussions, show notes, newsletter, and most importantly, bonus episodes. So definitely become a patron for $5 a month at patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks. And without further ado, here is the episode. Take care. Hey, how's it going, champagne sharks? This is Trevor. We are talking with David Sirota. I will let him introduce himself because I'm sure he's probably used to doing it. Uh, sure. Thanks. Uh, I, I am a investigative journalist. Uh, I was the presidential campaign speechwriter for Bernie Sanders in 2020. Uh, and I am the host of the new uh, podcast series called Meltdown, which takes a look, broadly speaking, at the ongoing implications of the financial crisis and how the Democrats' uh, response to that crisis uh, ended up uh, helping create the conditions for, uh, unfortunately, for Donald Trump's uh, ascent and what that means for things right now uh, in terms of repeating history. That's, that's the big question. So the first thing I want to ask you is what made you think this particular topic was necessary and why now? Like, what would you say to Joe Blow, NPR listener sitting somewhere in a Brooklyn cafe who's like, we won. What, why are you bringing this? Things are good. The bad guys are gone. Like, uh, is this sour grapes? Like, what would you say about why this had to be done and why now? Well, I think, first of all, we're, we're in a similar situation as we were. Uh, in 2009 and 2010, uh, a new Democratic president with a uh, who campaigned on very popular programs uh, was elected with a Democratic Congress, uh, tossed out a, an incumbent who was unpopular. Uh, and that was the situation in 2009. It's the situation in 2021. So first and foremost, I think anybody and everybody who didn't like Donald Trump didn't like George W. Bush. I know some people forget how much he was uh, disliked uh, by Democrats and really well, large swaths of the country. Anybody who doesn't want that history repeated probably should be asking, well, how did that history come to be in the first place? And what we document and detail is the new president came in with a huge mandate in the middle of a crisis uh, and had various sets of choices to make about how to confront the big money interests that had created those problems. Now, pro in 2009 and 2010, it was the Wall Street banks, a housing crisis, uh, a housing bubble, a speculation gone wild that cratered the economy. And what we detail in our series is there were a series of decisions made not to confront those big money interests, to try to appease those big money interests, uh, to try to find compromise with an uncompromising Republican Party. And what ended up happening, and I'm speaking broadly here, but what ended up happening was there wasn't, the country did not feel a sense of direct material help to millions of people. In fact, large swaths of the country uh, were told that help was coming and help did not come. Uh, huge amounts of help came to the banks. So people are 
getting foreclosed on, they're getting thrown out of their jobs, and they're watching the government tell them that things are being fixed. And what they're seeing is a huge amount of money going to the people at the very top, a handful of bankers who, by the way, created the problem and were never prosecuted for it. So the point in remembering that story and remembering how that how exactly that created a political backlash and how Republicans used that situation opportunistically and dishonestly to create the conditions for their own ascent. That is a very, very relevant lesson to understand right now. And I don't even mean just right now in this year. I mean, like right now, now, today, this week, as an example, this is a week and a set of weeks where the Democrats are quite literally debating whether to go big or whether to go home on their big uh, reconciliation bill, their big economic agenda, the agenda to, to help people with healthcare, expand Medicare, uh, invest in housing, try to deal with the climate crisis. There is an enormous debate happening right now uh, inside the Democratic Party, whether to go big on that, stand strong, and do everything possible to deliver direct material help to millions of people, or whether to try to scale things back, uh, try to find half measures that meet Republicans halfway. And what I would argue is that the thing that you learn, if you're willing to remember that painful history of the meltdown uh, from 2009 and 2010, the lesson should be, if you try to find compromise or common ground with an uncompromising opposition, and you do not deliver in a real way help to millions of people, you should expect history to repeat itself. It's that famous line. Uh, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. And if history repeats itself, I would argue that there is a decent chance the country will get not just Donald Trump, but something worse than Donald Trump. I mean, to a lot of people, they act like there is nothing worse than uh, Donald Trump. So that's a challenge in and of itself. There's this, I find very much uh, brunches back attitude that uh, I'm curious if you, from where you're looking at, because I feel like you have a finger pulse a lot of things. Do you think that people are receptive to this type of message right now? Or do you think the whole brunches back, the bad guys have won um Clink the champagne glasses, the Avengers beat Thanos meme view of the world. Uh, do, do you find that softening at all? Do you feel like it's uh, still pretty much the order of the day among, you know, the, the average liberal right now? Look, I think I think that's the danger is that the election. I mean, and by the way, that, that's what happened in 2009 and 2010. That's why this is so mind boggling that George Bush was defeated. And, and I think people have forgotten how much. Uh, damage and destruction that George Bush and Dick Cheney created and how reviled they were. Uh, and they were called the worst presidents in history. I, I would argue they, that, that George Bush was uh, the worst, if not one of the worst uh, presidents in history. Uh, I know he's, his image has been resuscitated uh, for various reasons that, that, that hurt my head to think about. Uh, but that was the same situation in 2009 and 2010. Hey, we beat, we beat George Bush as a new guy in, in office. He's inspiring. He's going to take care of things. No problem. In fact, there, what was incredible was we looked back on the punditry uh, and the political analysis after the 2008 election. And there were various uh, themes in the media uh, asserting that this was a new paradigm in politics. The Republicans would never come back. Uh, that was it. I mean, there were pundits 
literally saying there's no way that the Republicans uh, will have any chance in the 2010 election, which of course ended up being a landslide for the Republicans. So I, I think that's the fear is that people have get complacent. They think the the Democratic president, Team Blue, won, and that's it. We took care of it. No problem. And we don't have to worry about anything. Uh, That's what happened in 2009. I think that that strain exists uh, in America on the, I guess, center, center left, uh, the sort of complacent middle of the Democratic Party. But history teaches us that that's that's one of the most dangerous attitudes uh, to have. Now, I do think there are reasons to feel somewhat optimistic. More people appreciate the danger of the moment that we're in. And I'll give you two two points. Uh, One, it was none other than Chuck Schumer, the Senate Democratic leader, who said after Biden was elected, that we are not going to make the same mistake again. So he seemed to suggest at the beginning of Biden's uh, term what those (laughs) mistakes were and why it's so dangerous uh, to to make them again. Now, we'll see if he actually delivers on that commitment to not make the same mistake again. So that's one. The second both danger sign, but also a sign that there is awareness, uh, is you can see in some of these polls about Joe Biden today uh, and how he's he's had a significant erosion in his approval ratings. And I'm not saying that's a good thing. Where a lot of it is coming from is erosion in, uh, in enthusiasm among core Democratic Party constituencies, uh, Latinos, African-Americans and the like. And what that suggests to me is that there is a frustration out there as opposed to a complacency. It is a frustration that we were promised things. We expect the Democrats to deliver on those promises. And if the Democrats aren't delivering on those promises, we are frustrated. We're not just uh, complacent, we are frustrated. Now, the, the danger there is that frustration can breed disillusionment, not turning out to vote, for instance, uh, not being engaged. But but the opportunity there is is to have that frustration channeled into real demands and real sustained pressure for the Democrats to deliver uh, on their promises and to deliver for two reasons. One, they made the promises the country needs help when it comes to almost everything, uh, infrastructure, healthcare, uh, the climate crisis. I, I could go on. So the country needs help, but it's also the best chance to prevent the Republicans from coming back and taking over uh, with uh, with Donald Trump or somebody even worse than Donald Trump. And I want to add one other point here, that none other than Franklin Roosevelt understood this particular point. And you have to go back much farther in history than we go back in our podcast, Meltdown, but that Franklin Roosevelt in 1932 uh, and in his first term and into his second term had various statements that he made saying that essentially the people will not stand by, millions of people will not stand by uh, as the problems that are fixable are not being fixed by the people who have the power to fix them. Uh, And he made the argument that the New Deal, uh, a real investment in direct material help to people during the Great Depression, he made the case that that was not only morally necessary, but it was necessary to halt what was then a very serious ascent of fascism in the United States. Uh, And history proved that what the New Deal did was tamp down uh, that threat of fascism. And the threat of fascism is a threat that when people are forced into desperation 
uh, are scrambling over crumbs as a handful of people at the top get rich. Uh, fascism, it creates an opportunity for fascism to argue that, that the way to solve things is through a right-wing nationalist racist agenda. And FDR understood that the only way to try to tamp that down was to actually deliver real material gains to people, to show that fascism isn't the way to go, that a real uh, investment, a public investment in the country uh, can actually work to solve problems. Something about one, the two harbingers of hope that you mentioned, uh, Schumer, thing about not wanting to repeat the same mistakes. It's interesting you say that because at the end of Meltdown, one of the things you talk about or play is this clip of Schumer saying um, something that in retrospect just seems so uh, crazy, but at the same time, uh, it still keeps rearing its head. I mean, people have said similar things up until very recently, including uh, Hillary and her speech about you know winning over the quote-unquote good republicans like george w bush etc you know and what schumer said was and i think i'm kind of paraphrasing it um maybe you remember it more uh i'll give you the 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 quote was essentially for every working class uh uh, democratic voter that we lose in what in a place like western pennsylvania we will gain two republican voters in the suburbs uh, two essentially affluent republican voters in the suburbs of philadelphia he said that on the eve of the 2016 election. Oh, that's, that's amazing. That's, that's amazing. But and that really jumps out to me about that quote is, first, he was wrong, you know, so as a tactical way to win, it was a pretty, uh, you know, bad, bad quote. And it wasn't like he was wrong in a understandable way. There was plenty of people who, you know, f- before that realized that there was that was a bad plan and, you know, gave the reasons why and, you know, spoke about it. It wasn't like, you know, there weren't people who couldn't see this. But what I found interesting is even if it was true, like say this math really would have worked out and it was true and they would have won. Why would you want to lose working class Democrats in exchange for moderate Republicans? Because it's almost like the values don't matter. It's just winning. It would be like, you know, um, this is going to be Black Lives Matter. This is going to be a Black Lives Matter candidate. But I plan to lo- to win by losing a lot of black people, but gaining a lot of, uh, you know, white racists. It would, it would make no sense. Like, well, I can tell you why I believe that's Chuck Schumer's formula. I'm okay. not defending it as a formula. Yeah. That is the formula that the Democratic Party, the machine of the Democratic Party, uh, hopes to create and wants because the Democratic Party is always seeking a way to have, uh, to satisfy its corporate donors with policy but also cobble together enough voters to win elections. The difficulty in in that formula of working class voters for that formula is that if you're satisfying your corporate donors, you are not delivering real help to working class people. That many of these problems are binary. Either the health insurers are going to be able to fleece people on health insurance, and that is going to uh, disproportionately hurt low income and working class people. Either you're going to force down those insurance premiums and reduce the profits of the insurers and help those voters, 
or you're going to help those insurers and you're going to screw those voters. Uh, it's the same thing uh, on things like the minimum wage. It's the same thing on trade policy. It's the same thing over and over. And so the Democrats, it becomes an easier formula to make that work if your voting coalition is higher on the income scale. If you can make your voting coalition uh, more affluent, uh, affluent people are more able to pay those higher health insurance uh, costs. Affluent people are more, don't really care that much uh, about the minimum wage because it doesn't affect them. So the Democratic Party, if it is in a perpetual tension between its corporate donors, what they want to have happen uh, in order for them to continue giving money to the Democratic Party, if it's a tension between those donors and voters, essentially, then if you make your voting coalition wealthier, if you can somehow figure out a way to win elections with mostly uh, affluent voters, uh, then it, it makes that coalition easier to build. So I think that what Chuck Schumer said, it was politically wrong. By the way, I think this is electorally ludicrous. There simply aren't enough affluent voters out there uh, to win national elections consistently. But I think Chuck Schumer was essentially being honest about what he wants the Democratic Party voting coalition to be. I think it's delusional. Uh, I know that they would argue that they sort of kind of did this in the 2020 election. You know, they won, they did better in some of the suburbs. They didn't, they continued to have an erosion among working class voters. But I think over the long haul, that is ludicrous. We live in a country where the middle and working class are the vast majority of voters. I think also, you know, as someone who's not, who's not wealthy and everything. When I hear and talk to people I know who are in a similar boat, they have the same, we have to win at all costs attitude. But when I hear quotes like what Schumer said, it makes me think, okay, if we're going to win by losing working class people and gaining two to three moderate Republicans, which, you know, we both agree that's not even going to happen anyway. But even if it did happen, if that's how you won, why would I be happy about that win? Because a win gained in that manner is going to mean two or four years, depending on what kind of election you're talking about, where that person has to satisfy the needs and deliver to those moderate Republicans that they gain. So it's like you basically get the W in the in the win column, but you uh, now have a whole new constituency. And that's what I find kind of interesting, this idea that people should be happy just that... Um, the good, the quote unquote good guys won, even if the good guys had to do it by promising to give the bad guys everything that they wanted. It's a very bizarre definition of uh, ideologically winning. Well, and I think I think we're seeing that r right now. I mean, I think I think if you look at uh, I'll give you one example. I mean, you if 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 that is the coalition you think you have, if that is a coalition you think you need, if that is your political formula, then you're going to be pushing as um, this is just one example. But you're going to be pushing uh, things like repealing the cap on state and local tax deductions. I know that sounds like an esoteric issue, but it is a quintessential uh, uh, suburban affluent issue. Most of those tax cuts that, that, that would come from a policy like that, I'm talking about hundreds of billions of dollars, would go to the richest 1% of the country. And the, the vast, vast, vast majority go to the top 10% uh, of the country. And what do you know that in the entire debate over Biden's agenda today, 
One of the central, apparently not negotiable things in that bill is a repeal of those caps on those tax breaks. What that says is that the the Demo- there are powerful forces in the Democratic Party that think they primarily answer to an affluent base, uh, that think that the key swing voters, quote unquote, in the country are affluent voters and not working class voters. What it says is, is that the party is potentially willing to simply try to win elections uh, by writing off vast swaths of the working class of the country. And as our podcast argues, that is an incredibly, incredibly dangerous political formula. That is the way you get another Donald Trump. One of the things that was said near the end of the podcast that I think really ties into what we're talking about right now, and it jumped out at me, was that there's a line that is pretty much, I'm paraphrasing, uh, if you get the people a choice, it's been proven over and over again. If you get the people a choice between a pseudo-Republican and an actual Republican, they'll go for the real thing every time. And that line, I think, really exposes a lot of why the idea of, you know, we're going to win over moderate Republicans at the expense of working class uh, Democrats just really doesn't work because uh, at that point, you're promising to be a pseudo-Republican. That's absolutely right. I mean, if you give people a choice between uh, something that's a that's not really the real thing and the real thing, you are running the risk of people saying, you know what, I'm just going to vote for the real thing. I'm just going to like I'm. Uh, you're not giving me a real choice. And and if you do that after you've been given power to deliver, and I think this is a really important. If you do that after the public has voted for change and given you power, and you don't deliver on the change that you promised, you should expect voters to once again vote for change. Now, I'm not saying Donald Trump deserved to win. Obviously, I didn't want him to win. Uh, I think it was a disaster. Uh, our podcast, Meltdown, is a warning. But but the point is, is that if you actually take a 50,000-foot view of politics over the last uh, 20 or so years, voters have consistently been voting for change over and over and over again. You had the 2008 election, a change election. You had the 2010 election, a change election. You had the 2016 election, a change election. You had the 2018 uh, congressional election, again, a change election, change of party in Congress. You had the 2020 election, a change election. What are voters really saying? They're saying we keep voting for change and we keep getting more of the same. And if we keep getting more of the same, we're going to keep voting for change. Uh, you know, you mentioned the two good signs that, you know, you find as you know positive harbingers. But I would say a third good sign is the actual existence of this podcast. And what I mean by that is, uh, I mean, it's for a pretty corporate company. It's Audible uh, owned by Amazon. And it's. To me, I think it's safe to characterize it as uh, criticizing the Democrats, but from the left position. And I feel like even 10 years ago, there was just not much in like corporate mainstream media of a demand for that. You were either had to be like a centrist or mainstream, you know, Democrat, or you have this kind of centrist left position, or you could be a Glenn Beck or, you know, a Sean Hannity. And there's a lot of uh, money and room for like that that right wing fake populism, but I find it pretty interesting that it that on Audible as one of the originals we have something that is basically criticizing the Democrats from the left, and 
I was wondering, like, your thoughts about that. Was it at all a hard sell? Was it surprising to you even? Or, you know, is this something that you've been seeing happening for a while? Or do you find my assessment wrong altogether and that there's always been kind of a space in uh, the mainstream discourse for something like Meltdown? Well, I, I, I would agree with you that, that having lived through and been in the media and et cetera, et cetera, during, during the uh, Obama years that I don't know if I would call it left or right, but the idea that criticism uh, uh, from a, a kind of non-right-wing populist perspective uh, I think that's fair. Non-right-wing is more appropriate. Yeah, a non-right-wing uh, populist perspective. I just don't think there has been a space in the media for that. For, for Frankly, for in my view, for obvious reasons. I mean, much of the media is controlled by big money interests that don't really want that analysis out there. Uh, I'm not being conspiratorial about it. I just think that that's, you know, we have a fundamentally conservative media infrastructure in this country. Uh, and but but I also think this, I think that that what we lay out in in meltdown is so I don't want to say it's obvious because it's not exactly obvious, but it's I guess what I would say is it's un, it's so undeniable. It's so uh, it's so not only well-documented in our podcast, but the facts that are out there, what actually happened, if we're willing to sit down and think about it and really, really meditate on what has happened in this country, then what I'm saying here and what's in the podcast, it's, it's undeniable. And my hope is that people will listen to this podcast and say, you know, I don't care if I'm, I'm a conservative, I'm a progressive, a liberal, a centrist, whatever you want to call yourself, that you can sit down and listen to this podcast and say, you know what? Something fundamentally broke in our country uh, when Wall Street uh, destroyed the economy through 6 million people, 6 million families out of their homes and were rewarded with a giant bailout. Nobody was prosecuted. No top Wall Street CEO was even fired. Uh, that all happened. And obviously, if that happens, and we elect, and we've elected somebody who promised, and not to pick on only Barack Obama, but we elected somebody who promised to change things, and all of that then, all of that not change happened right after that. What did we expect? Like, what, what did, what did we think was going to happen? And the point in, in internalizing that and understanding that is to make sure it doesn't happen again. Because again, I go back to if you if you want history to repeat itself, then 2009 and 2010, then then fine, replay it. You know, kill the reconciliation bill, gut it. You know, don't actually deliver real material help to people, but then don't stand around wondering why another 2016 election, a 2016 style election, is on the horizon. Uh, so, so I'm encouraged that there is now more of a space in our uh, media. Uh, to uncover those facts. And, and I, I appreciate the fact uh, that uh, we were able to find uh, a, a, a partner uh, that was willing to let us go report out this story. Uh, and, and we had the resources to, you know, it took 16 months to report this, this story. It was a, it was a huge amount of work. Uh, and I'm glad that it's, it's going to get out there to a really wide audience. Because again, the reason I did this, I mean, the reason I took 16 months, uh, to do this, uh, is because I believe we need to sound that alarm now. I don't want to see 
uh, another uh, Donald Trump. You know, I'm not, this is not a, uh, it's not a political election argument, like vote for this candidate or that candidate, but I don't want to see a, a kind of fascist style, authoritarian right-wing takeover of this country. And I think we are dangerously close to having that happen. And I think the only, or at least the best chance we have of preventing that is for the government to show that it can deliver real help to lots of people. You were struggling with the word obvious and, you know, not feeling quite right with it. And I kind of know what you mean. And, you know, I would say it's not obvious, but it's hidden in plain sight. Like it's exactly it's it's there, but you just have to cut through a lot of the noise and bullshit that's kind of competing for attention and draw and drowning it out. And I would say that's probably what meltdown does does the best like it cuts through a lot of um the bullshit the obfuscations the rationalizations the excuses etc and just kind of you know gets to the bone the the center of the the matter you know um you know well and i and i appreciate that and and i want to tell people you know for folks who are listening i think what people are going to like is they're going to they're going to remember some of this stuff that either uh they had forgotten about uh, that I mean, I, I remember researching this. I mean, I think a lot of people have forgotten about the entire firestorm, for instance, over the AIG bonuses. This was a huge thing that happened right out of the gate in 2009. I think a lot of people either didn't know about it. Well, I think a lot of people knew about it, but I think a lot of people may have just blanked it out of their brain. Right after Obama got elected, uh, the Democrats essentially authorized uh, government bailout money uh, to be used to give executive bonuses to AIG, one of the uh, big financial institutions that created the meltdown. Uh, so I think people are going to listen to this and be like, oh my God, I can't, I, I, I can't, I, I remember that. I can't believe that even happened. That was insane, right? There was another thing that I, that I had forgotten all about when I was uh, reporting this, which is that the TARP bailout, the, the big bailout for the banks, First of all, it was sold as, even in its name, the Troubled Asset Relief Program. It was sold as, we're going to actually help homeowners, right? Troubled assets, aka homes, right? We're going to help homeowners. That's what it, it was sold as. It ended up delivering almost all of its benefits to just a handful of, of bankers. It was a top-down, I mean, I it was sort of a kind of classic trickle-down idea. We'll help the banks and that will help the economy. Uh, and what I forgot and is so mind-boggling is that in about, I think it was 2010, uh, the Democrats uh, were so uh, kind of cowed by the Republican who had been uh, blasting uh, spending, which is such a kind of garbage argument. But the Republicans were opportunistically blasting, you know, the spending stimulus bill and the like. And the Democrats went out and and celebrated, lauded themselves for rescinding about 300, or I think it was $350 billion of that TARP money in the name of deficit reduction. And what, what's so in, insane about that is, is that the White House had $300 billion already passed by Congress at its disposal that it could have tapped to directly help millions of people. And the Democrats chose to rescind that money, to rescind that power, to, to essentially not allow their own president on the eve of the midterm elections to tap into a giant amount of resources to actually help millions of voters. I mean, when you really think about how insane that is, 
uh, both, by the way, economically and politically. It's just mind-boggling. And, and, and then you bring it into the, into the current situation, again, to this debate over should the reconciliation bill be big or small. You're like, guys, millions of people are hurting right now. You're, you're debating reducing the amount of help you're going to give to people. I mean, we're, we're right now talking at a moment where the Democratic Party, the leaders of the Democratic Party are talking about restricting the child tax credit, one of the most popular one of the most straightforwardly successful programs that has reduced poverty uh, in modern history. They're talking about using their majority uh, to restrict that program. It's almost a perfect analog to that situation I told you about with the, with the bailout, that we're going to rescind uh, a pool of money that can be used to help people. You're going to restrict the child tax credit uh, when millions of people are hurting? Are you insane? And it really does suggest they, ha- they don't remember the lessons of 2009 and 2010, or they don't care. They, they, just, they just don't, they don't, they don't care. I don't know which it is, but, but my hope is, is that when people listen to this series, they'll say, they'll say when they hear ideas like that, they'll say this is completely ludicrous and insane. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's going to be uh, tough for people to say when they when they listen to this because it's a pretty damning it's a pretty damning indictment, and it's also pretty interesting. I, I think it's pretty I think it's pretty interesting to see how it hurt the Republicans too. Like like as far as like the mainstream, because Donald Trump wasn't just a repudiation of the Democrats, and you talk about this a lot in Meltdown, but it was also kind of a repudiation of the mainstream, the mainstream Republicans as well. And that uh, the Tea Party and a lot of that crowd did succeed in making people lose faith in the Democrats. And that was kind of a pseudo win. But the idea I got from Meltdown, I didn't really consider it until I heard Meltdown, but that they did it at the expense of their own credibility to a large degree because the Tea Party kind of made people distrust government. Well, and I think, I I think that's actually the deeper issue here, which is that if you really dig down to, to bedrock here, what the meltdown really is, and I think we're still living in what we call the meltdown. The meltdown is essentially people losing faith in the government's, not only its ability, but its willingness and desire to help regular people. I think that is fundamentally what happened, that what broke and what has been melting down. People's faith that that people in power in the government can, will, and desire to help everybody else. People, lots and lots of people have lost faith in it. They've lost so much faith in it, they were willing to vote for an obvious huckster, Donald Trump. And that is why this moment is as dangerous, maybe even more dangerous, because there's a fool me once, shame on me, fool, uh, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me kind of dynamic here. People voted for Obama, promised to solve problems, lots of problems. People do not feel like they were solved. Uh, people got mad. They voted for an obvious huckster who to essentially just basically promise, I'm just going to blow up the system. I'm just going to be mad and blow up the system. Now it's the second chance. You got Joe Biden in there. We've got a second chance. A lot of people are still disillusioned, but there's one chance. There's a second chance to actually show that the government can deliver real, direct material help to people. And if you blow it on the second chance, then how do you ever restore anybody's faith in the idea that government can do 
or is willing to do anything. It's not just the Democrats or Republicans. It's just the government itself. I mean, the Republicans can benefit from that by saying, we're here to make sure the government does as little as possible because you already believe that the government can't do anything right. So this is why the stakes are arguably even higher. Because if you, if you blow it now, then millions of people who already feel burned by the experience of the last 10 years, I'm not sure if you can ever get them back. And again, I'm not talking about getting them back for one party, party or the other. I'm talking about restoring their faith essentially in the American idea that we are a country that has a government that can provide actual things that a government should provide. Something about what you said about that we're still in the meltdown, that was something that jumped out at me. Uh, those words don't, I think, appear in the actual meltdown podcast, but it was a sentiment that is baked into it. And it was a sentiment that crossed my mind when I was listening. I was kind of realizing when I was listening, the extent to which this changed our world. Like this is, we're in a post, you know, subprime mortgage, post TARP world. And a couple of things jumped out at me. And what I thought was, it's still happening, but it's normalized now. I think that I think is the scariest part as in people have acclimated. This is the new normal. Uh, and, and it makes me worry if that will even make it harder for people to even fight back. Cause I don't think people even expect things anymore. You know, I think, I don't think people expect to own a home. Like there was a certain amount of entitlement that used to be in the climate. And I don't mean entitlement in a bad way. I mean, like uh, you pay taxes, you should feel entitled to get something for your taxes. I mean, entitlement in a reasonable, a reasonable entitlement to certain things. And now it's like, there's COVID, there's a big, pandemic but um who are we to ask for universal health care uh who am i to expect benefits i should just hustle harder it's normal to grind and gig let me just get some crypto and robin hood stocks or make a patreon it's it's very scary to me the extent to which we don't even feel entitled to a safety net in exchange for our tax dollars anymore we um feel like if we can afford to get own a home it's like we want some kind of lottery or, or something. And I was wondering if you agree with that to any degree with as far as like the mainstream populace. And if so, is the takeaway from that? How do we I, turn think that it's, I think it's a really good point. I mean, I think I think that you're right, that that there has been a normalization of the idea that that we shouldn't expect anything from government. Uh, and I think that is the Republicans uh, evil genius it's sort of a self-reinforcing process. The government, they make it hard for the government, hard or impossible for the government to deliver things, then show, say, ha see, the government can't deliver anything. So we shouldn't expect the government to deliver anything. And so let's continue rescinding and whittling away what the government even does. It's, it's, for them, it's a nihilistic uh, but politically effective formula. Uh, and I think that you're right. It has normalized the idea that to expect anything from government is ridiculous. And, and what, what's, what really is maddening about it is that you see it seep into the thinking among Democratic voters, Democratic media, the Democratic Party. Uh, oh, you know, 
Now, we can't do a public option. What are you talking about? I mean, we, you know, we, you know the, the Obamacare is just subsidizing the insurance companies and the idea of even just a mild uh, uh, public health insurance option, just this, uh, just an option. I'm not talking about single payer here or Medicare for all. We can't do a public option. That's never been done before. And the, you know, health and healthcare companies have too much power. So, you know, if we get Obamacare of that, you know, that, that, yeah, that's fine. That's, that's the only thing we should Yeah. Expect. I just thought of another example when, when you mentioned things that you hear from voters, uh, uh, too big to fail is another thing that has been weirdly normalized now. And I've heard from regular Joe Blow Democratic voters, too big to fail talking points. You know, it's like, well, what are we supposed to do? Let these big banks fail? And it's like, yes. Like, why are you even, why does it bother you? Like, you don't even have stocks in the market. You know, you're not working for a bank. Why do you, why do you feel your livelihood and future is so tied into these banks and like, you know, five big um, companies that, you know, are driving up the Dow Jones. Well, look, the real, and, and I would add to that, the, I mean, the real, the travesty on top of even that, and again, our, our, our podcast, we, we, I think people have forgotten all about this. There was a whole debate over how to limit the size of the banks, break them up. It was a hugely popular idea that the Democratic Senate then voted down, even though, by the way, it had some Republican support. It had, it literally had some Republican support in the, in the Senate. It got voted down, but even worse, mm-hmm. none of the executives were not only not, none of the executives were prosecuted, but even worse than that, none of the executives were even, the top executives were even replaced. There is a very standard way uh, to deal uh, with financial crises that we've seen in other industrialized countries. Uh, the government essentially temporarily nationalizes the banks. Uh, it changes the leadership of the company uh, while fixing the company's books. So at least the CEOs, the top leadership that created the problem, they're gone. We've seen that happen in other countries. It didn't happen in the United States because the, the White House and the regulators didn't use the leverage that they have, the power they had to say, you need this bailout money. Fine, you can have the bailout money, but you got to change executives or you got to, you know, we have an equity state. None of that was done. None of that was done. All we all that happened was a propping up of the same exact system, the same exact specific companies, and the same exact specific executives uh, who created the problem. And it's not a coincidence that that is an industry that got propped back up. That industry is the one that bankrolled Barack Obama's campaign. That bankrolls the Democratic Party, bankrolls both parties, frankly. So that that's not that, that financial connection to the political world is not uh, a coincidence. Uh, and 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 here's the thing: you can know that the idea of at least at minimum replacing the leadership of a company when a company screws up big time and gets a government bailout, you can know that's a normal idea because that's what happened to General Motors at the exact same time. The difference between the way the Democratic leaders treated the auto companies and how they treated Wall Street is so important to remember. The Obama administration went into GM, it got a bailout, and they cleaned house at the executive level. They did the absolute opposite when it came to Wall Street. Now, not only is that immoral, not only is that wrong, but think about the politics of that. I mean, let's just, and to me, that's why I keep what I think is different about this podcast series, because I think a lot of people have heard about the, the, the meltdown, the, the financial crisis part of the meltdown. And we go over a lot of that, but I think a lot of people sort of remember those, you know, the housing crisis and the, you know, the, there was the movie, the big short, et cetera, et cetera. 
but I think it's the political ramifications. What was the government saying to the country when it was saying, we are going to not prosecute these people. We are going to allow them to stay in office. We are going to bail them out. And we are going to allow them to use bailout money to pay themselves big bonuses. While you, the country, are being foreclosed on, losing your job, watching your pension and your 401k savings uh, get destroyed. What is the message the government is sending to people? It is sending a message that we are only interested in, in delivering for the wealthiest, most powerful, most politically connected people in this country. And we don't care about anyone else. There's a old parable. I think it's a I think it's a Buddhist or Hindu parable. It shows up in like multiple texts, but it's the it's several like Indian variations, but broadly it's uh, the blind men and the elephant. And you might've heard, I think it's a very popular one, but it's about a group of blind men. And they hear that a strange animal has been brought to town, but none of them, you know, have ever encountered an elephant. So, you know, they go out of curiosity to inspect it, you know, to see what it's like. So they seek out the elephant, they're groping around it. You know, the first blind man, you know, puts his hand in the trunk and he's like, this is a snake. This is like a, this is <laughs> right. like a snake, and the other one touches the ear. It's like this is like a fan. Someone touches the leg, and is like, oh, this is like a pillar. And another one touches the spear, and is like, is the the tusk, and it's like this is the spear. This is like a spear, and so on. <laughs> right. None of them can actually grasp the whole the whole elephant. And I feel like that's kind of a problem with a lot of analysis of you know the financial crisis, how we ended up where we were today. I feel like this is uh, does a good job of painting a picture of the whole the whole elephant but you know i kind of worry a lot of people are invested in not seeing the elephant you know that's i think one one of the problems it's uh yeah for sure and and to be clear look i you know we i want to make clear people will hear in our in meltdown this podcast series you'll hear from the obama administration you will hear from barack obama himself there is a never before aired uh, segment uh, audio of my interview with Barack Obama way back in 2006. Uh, I'm not going to give away what he, what he says. You'll have to listen to it. But we also hear from Obama's top economic advisor, Austin Goolsby. And I don't want to, I'm paraphrasing here, but what Goolsby and what a lot of Obama folks said uh, and continue to say is that essentially we had to save the country, even, uh, excuse me, we had to save the economy, even if we lost the country. And so it's kind of a notorious rejoinder uh, that I think it was from Tim Geithner, the Secretary of the Treasury, which is that basically um, we have to we we had to make decisions that were politically unpopular in order uh, to save the economy, even if it lost us the country. And what I think is what I think is problematic about that, among other things, is I reject the idea that the only way to save the economy is to lose the country. I just I I, I think that is the that is what is a fundamental disagreement. I think my view personally is that the Obama administration uh, had, had um, financial ties through campaign contributions to, the, to Wall Street. They were a conflict-averse uh, conflict administration when it comes to corporate power. Uh, they wanted to try to find a way uh, to appease Wall Street uh, and, and help the economy at the same time. And those two things, frank, frankly, weren't possible to do uh, in a way that would make people happy, but that they're, they didn't want to think about, they refused to consider an alternative. 
a much more bottom-up recovery. As one example among many, think about the foreclosure situation and and how it was addressed. It was addressed by giving the, the banks a ton of money and hoping that they might renegotiate people's mortgages. That's essentially how it was dealt with. Okay. And a lot of banks didn't. A lot of people got foreclosed on. A lot of bankers got rich. Think about how, how else it could have been solved. One example, you could have reformed the bankruptcy laws as Barack Obama himself explicitly promised uh, during his campaign for president. In fact, he criticized John McCain for not supporting this, but to simply allow bankruptcy courts to write down the amount that people owed on their homes so that they could pay their mortgages, they could afford their mortgages and not be foreclosed on. The banks hated that idea. It would have forced them to take some losses. The idea was then killed by the Obama administration that promised it. How about just direct aid to homeowners, just giving people financial help directly to help them pay their mortgages? That didn't happen. It didn't happen in any kind of mass way. So the idea that they had to save the economy in a top-down way that they did, that would then lose them the country, lose them the hearts and minds of the country, I just think is fundamentally wrong. And I think its wrongness comes, it's not that the Obama folks are stupid. Uh, It's not, I, I don't even think it's that they fully on the merits disagree. I think it's that they had a political analysis and a personal financial analysis about campaign contributions and how close they were to Wall Street. Their analysis was, we don't want to do that. We want to make our friends on Wall Street happy and also try to solve this problem. Uh, And you know, Neil Borofsky, who was the inspector general of the TARP program, the big bailout, I mean, he put it this way, and I'm paraphrasing again, but he basically said, look, they, a lot of the folks I was working that I was, you know, he was basically the, the policeman of the of the bailout, right? The independent policeman. He wasn't in the exactly in the Obama administration. He basically said, "Look, a, a lot of people in this administration were friends with, and were from the same kind of social sphere of, and had come through the revolving door from Wall Street. So th- they didn't want to like bust their friends. They didn't want to make life." Uh, ask their essentially their friends, their their social class to have to have make any real sacrifices, and so I think that's at the core of why those choices were made. Uh, you know, one of the things that you were talking about was how popular you know the idea of you know being against too big to fail was, and there was a surprising quote in Meltdown where uh, even Greenspan and for people who know Alan Greenspan's career, I mean the guy is a huge objectivist, reads. Like Ayn Rand, like for fun all the time. He's still, you know, and and he's to this day, I believe. I mean, he was always an objectivist, but he says uh, it's too big to fail. Then it's just uh, too big, and that kind of blew my mind because I'm like, if if Green if Greenspan is saying that, then that's really shows how popular it is because that's not um, something he would normally have said that's not how he how he lived his career and when i heard that it made me think of because i'm I'm old enough to remember the breakup of ma bell you know Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. that was like major you know Mm -hmm. that was that was a huge thing they broke up that company into so many smaller companies and i just feel like you wouldn't see that today and you look at AT at&t today and what are they they um own time warner and they're huger than than ever and everyone just gives them a you know uh, green light to just keep it's like a formality at, at this point and it's not so much a question but just general observation that no um, I, I look i agree with you i mean i i think the, i mean another way to look at it is which is really disheartening is that a campaign 
that explicitly made hope and change its center, its entire message, delivered a fortification of the same. I think we have to acknowledge that that happened. And I want to be very clear. It's not to say that nothing changed. Obamacare, as an example, tweaked the insurance system in ways that expanded healthcare in ways that were good, but it was not a structural change of the healthcare system. Uh, this, the response to the financial crisis w- was absolutely not a structural change of a, a predatory financial system. We know that. That's obvious. And so what's mind-boggling is that it was a campaign explicitly. Its, its motto was hope and change, and it fortified the same. And then that birthed a different kind of real change. Donald Trump, a kind of dark, bizarro, horrible version of change. And then you got uh, Joe Biden. And Joe Biden, one thing I think people forget is that he's made a set of campaign promises that are in tension with each other. And they're this. He made, on one hand, a set of promises that his policies would be transformative. Uh, His policies would be uh, some of the most progressive uh, in American history, that they would represent real, genuine structural change. And he also promised his donors, infamously, that nothing would fundamentally change if he's elected president. That is a direct. So his promises are intention. And it is my view that history is screaming at us. Recent history is screaming at us that if he fulfills the latter promise, that nothing fundamentally changes for billionaires, that nothing fundamentally changes in a wildly uh, dysfunctional economy. If he fulfills that promise, rather than his other set of promises for transformative change, then we should expect another vehicle of a dark, horrible, nihilistic form of change on the horizon. And that is what we should want to avoid. Now, um, the remaining things I have to ask will take about maybe like 15 minutes, I think. Is that okay with you? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, Okay, great. Great. So uh, I want to ask a broader question this time. And I want to ask, how was this, how did this meltdown come about? Like what, what was the process, like the conception? How did it evolve over the um, creation of it? I'm just kind of curious about, you know, the the birth of this thing well you know i mean i i it, it came out of the fact that i've been reporting on a lot of this stuff for years and years and years uh it came out of the fact that uh out of my my frankly my fear that that this kind of history is gonna going to uh, repeat and it also came out of the fact of the of the time that we're living in now which is i i really do think i mean you know never say never but i i, I think this is there are very few moments that come along in history where there is a a chance for some kind of legislative change that's not horrible. I mean, I'm I'm 45 years old, right? So so uh, Reagan, Bush, Clinton, you know, they come. Uh, think about it. Like there was right after Bill Clinton got elected, there was about two years where he could have pa- he tried to pass and he could have passed some form of national health care. Then that was gone. Then it was a Republican Congress. There was Obama. Then I mean, then from there, from '94 all the way to 2008, there was you know either Republicans ran Congress or the Republicans ran everything. And there was 2008 to 2010. Now there's 2021 to 2022. These moments are incredibly fleeting. 
and so, you know, I really felt like it was important to do anything I could to grab as many people as I can by the lapels and say, we have to actually deliver or we are going to continue this downward spiral. I mean, I don't want to sound like hysterical or you know, over the top here, but I really believe we are on the precipice of something that could be terrible. But I also think we could be on the precipice of something that could be better. But if we do not learn from history, we increase the odds that it's going to be terrible. And I look, I have, I have kids. I, I, I love my community. I don't want I, I to see that happen to, to their future. I don't want to see it happen to my community, my, my country. And, and so I just think that the, the, the truths in meltdown, they're painful. I get it. You know, I remember being excited when Obama got elected. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't starry-eyed, but I, I, you know, I thought there was a chance of, of something really good to happen. Uh, and I, 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 so I remember that. And I know it's painful to think about, to, 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 to be honest with ourselves about what happened. And I think, I think that one of the laments in this, this series is that we, I don't think we have been honest. I don't think a lot of apolitical people, liberals, Democrats have been willing to be honest about what really happened in uh, the Obama years. And I, I don't think that helps anybody to not be honest about that. I think that simply, again, raises the chances of worse things to happen, that painful truths need to be surfaced so that we can learn real lessons from those truths. Were there any ways, and what I mean by this is, I know a lot of people who have made like documentaries, podcast series, et cetera, where they kind of start with a certain narrative and for the most part, you know, stick to the narrative, but sometimes in compiling the material and seeing it all together, like certain storylines or threads um, end up surprising, surprising even the makers of it. And it kind of turns into something else. I was wondering if in any ways you were surprised even by what you ended up putting together and finding. I think one of the things I was surprised by was that even people who had some modicum of power felt powerless. I mean, I think that kind of surprised me. You know, you're the inspector general of, of, of the $700 billion bank bailout. Uh, you're a Democratic congressman, Brad Miller, who's in our, in our series, uh, on the Financial Services Committee. You're asking the Obama administration to fulfill its campaign promise on bankruptcy reform, and you just get steamrolled. And I guess my point in, in, in mentioning those as examples, I guess I'm not surprised by it, but it was, it was somewhat shocking to hear them talk about how powerless even they felt. Uh, it, it how they were in positions and 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 you know they they blew the alarm they they sounded the alarm they blew the whistle et cetera et cetera but even they felt steamrolled by this larger machine which really is in a certain ways kind of depressing because if you're if you're up in that stratosphere and you still feel like you can't move the ball uh, it 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 really speaks to how rigged the system can be. And it really made me wonder, what can really fix this? What can really convince um, Democratic Party leaders to actually understand that refusing to deliver for people is not only immoral, but is politically toxic? I don't know what it's going to take. I mean, I, I, I don't know if it's possible. I, I, I hope it's possible. It certainly was possible in the New Deal period. And by the New Deal period, I mean, you know, not that it was perfect. There were, you know, terrible things that were going on in the New Deal, but the New Deal program, the, the economic program, you know, the New Deal era was from, you know, the 1930s all the way into the 1970s. So like, what is it going to take 
to actually put that kind of uh, of dynamic back together? And is it even possible? And and you know, I I, I thought I would end up at the end of this reporting this series saying I, I'm sure if we do X, Y, and Z, that's the way to get there. But after reporting this series, there's there's a little piece of me that's like I you know I don't fully know when hearing from Brad Miller or from Neil Borofsky, I'm not fully sure that just getting the right people in there, or at least only a few of the right people in there can actually change this system. I guess my point is, is that I'm wondering, I do wonder, is the system itself unfixable? I, I, I'm, I'm an eternal, I'm a, I said this to my friends, I'm kind of a, an eternal optimist living inside of a pessimist body, if you will, or a pessimist brain. So I, I, I think we got to try. I can't answer honestly in my mind whether I think the kind of change that needs to happen is possible. I, I, I mean, I know it's possible in the sense that the government can deliver, functionally it can deliver. There's, there are the tools available to deliver real help to people. But can the politics change enough to activate those tools? That's the question I don't know the answer to. And this is one of my last questions. Uh, I have two more, but I wanted to know, who do you think, if he had to put one person as the biggest quote-unquote villain. I'm using villain semi-tongue-in-cheek as far as botching the bailout and causing a mixed a, a missed opportunity. I I came away with one person that I thought came out as like you know the biggest villain, but I'm curious if that's how you saw it and intended it, or if I came came away with a different conclusion than what you intended. Well, the, you know, I, I think there's there's a little bit of a banality of evil going on in, in, in what people will hear by that. I mean, that, that phrase meaning it's the little bits of, of evil people in the machine itself, where even the task at hand or the specific thing that's being worked on isn't itself fully super evil, but it all adds up to kind of an evil cacophony. Two people come to mind. I mean, I mean, Tim Geithner, the Secretary of the Treasury. Yes, that's what that's the person I, I was yeah, talking about. I mean, he 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 came out of the New York Federal Reserve, which is known to be extremely close to Wall Street. His chief of staff was a Goldman Sachs lobbyist. Uh, he was the one who took who finally belatedly admitted he did the whole AIG uh, uh, executive bonuses. Uh, he's the guy who um, was mad at the idea of a more bottom-up bailout that would actually uh, directly help homeowners. I mean, he he kind of is a recurring uh, wrongdoer uh, in, in this story. And I also think uh, former Connecticut Senator Chris Dodd, who 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 we 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 say is kind of a um, a Forrest Gump of, of evil that like keeps showing up in these horrible ways uh, all throughout the story, right? Like at one point, he's the guy, he's the senator who put in at the behest and in working with Tim Geithner, he put in the stuff in the law uh, to allow those AIG bail, uh, those AIG executive pay. Then like later on in the story, he is the guy engineering the effort to kill the too big to fail legislation from other Democrats in the Senate. He just keeps recurring uh, each and every time. Uh, and But the point is, is that I want to be clear. I, I think our politics wants us to identify great heroes and horrible supervillains. And there are heroes and there are supervillains. We're talking right now when two supervillains are dominating the entire political discourse, uh, Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin. But I think we have to understand the heroes and the villains as expressions of systems. I view politics as these politicians are, they're humans, but they're machines. They're inputs 
into a larger machine. If you want something good, you want good votes from your politician, you've got to create the dynamics in your community to hold them accountable if they cast bad votes. Uh, that politicians respond to inputs, campaign contributions, pressure, all sorts of things. And that I think we, we want to identify them as individual. They've got a good heart or a bad heart. They're Darth Vader, they're Luke Skywalker, but I think they are expressions of a system. There's this idea that I've heard talked about the rotating villain, that it's always someone else's. Joe, you know, um, uh, the rotating villain with a thousand faces. Joe Lieberman becomes Joe Manchin. It's the same. It's the same. Rahm Emanuel becomes Josh Gottheimer, the Democrat from New Jersey, who's now threatening to kill the reconciliation bill. It's, it's just the rotating villain. And I think there's something to that, because I think what that actually says is these supervillains are expressions of a larger system and individual heroes are not going to fix or at least singularly fix that system. One Bernie Sanders or one AOC or whoever you think is a, is a great hero, they are not going to be able to singularly fix that, that the change has to be systemic so that the system produces lots of Bernie Sanders or AOCs or whoever else. Now, my final question is, I'm going to take a little bit of a devil's advocate tact and everything, because, you know, what we're seeing now is the, you know, very polite, conciliatory uh, David Sirota. But, you know, you do get into your uh, fights sometimes and you do have people out there who, you know, they're like David Sirota and they start foaming at the mouth. So <laughs> I'm going to pretend like, you know, pretend somebody out there is interested in listening to Meltdown, but they talk to one of their centrist Democrat friends and they're like, oh, that's the Rota guy. I heard about that guy. That guy, <laughs> he uh, he's just, he's got a history of Bernie Sanders. This is just sour grapes. They hate the mainstream Democrats. So this is like a hit job. It's a whatever. You shouldn't listen to Meltdown. Trust me. It's just, uh, uh, he wants to help. He'd rather have a Trump than, than, than a Biden. He's that He's that sour. So what would you say to the person who's got somebody whispering in the ear about the, the evil, argumentative, uh, hate monger David Sirota? Well, there's many things to respond to that. I, I, I would say <laughs> I would say, I guess for myself personally, I, I find it strange that I've spent my life working uh, in, a, in and around democratic politics. Uh, I, I'm an investigative journalist, but I, look, I worked for uh, a democratic governor. I'm married to a Democratic state legislator. Uh, I worked for a guy who's now the governor, the Democratic governor of Connecticut. Uh, I worked to help elect uh, my first campaign I ever worked on to help elect a Democrat in a swing district that had been Republican for 40 years. I'm not brandishing my Democratic Party credentials, but the idea that this is, you know, I hate the Democrats and I just, you know, I, I, or I, or I just hate them for, for, I have issues with them for no reason is just absurd. I mean, it just doesn't make, it just makes no sense at all. I, I would also say that I obviously do have a deep criticism of corporate Democrats, but it's not tribal in nature. And by that, I mean, I don't dislike corporate Democrats just because they're part of a faction that I'm not part of. I dislike corporate Democrats because the policies that they put forward harm people and the policies they put forward make it harder for good policy to get passed. And the policies they put forward are designed to prop up the status quo that is hurting millions of people. And I do not believe, and this is maybe the fundamental disagreement, I do not believe that you, that the Democratic Party has to be a corporatist 
sellout party in order to win elections. I believe that as the party has become a corporatist party, the party has made it harder for itself to win elections. So that would be what I would say about myself. What I would say about the podcast, which relates to my work, is I have won awards for investigative journalism. Uh, And it's not to pat myself on the back, but it is to say the skepticism that the media industry in parts of the media industry may, I guess, sort of have for me because I am open about my own values. I mean, the elite corporate media industry doesn't really like people who are open about their values. They want so-called objectivity. I I, I reject the idea that anybody's uh, purely objective. I just feel like I'm more honest about admitting what my values are. But my point in in mentioning winning awards as an example is that that's a media industry that doesn't want to give somebody like me any recognition. And the stories that I've broken open are all fact-based, document-based, whether it was uh, exposing Chris Christie's pension corruption uh, or whether it was exposing uh, the former governor of Connecticut's uh, corruption when it came to the healthcare industry. I could go through the list, uh, Andrew Cuomo's corruption. My point is only that the reporting that I do speaks for itself. Whether you like me, whether you hate me, my reporting is grounded in indisputable facts. And this podcast series is grounded in indisputable facts. I can tell you, we had a fact checker who was one of the most meticulous fact checkers I've ever worked with. So everything in this podcast has been scrubbed and and has been reviewed and has gone through due diligence. So I would simply ask folks to listen to this podcast. You can like me or hate me, but listen to it and judge it on its merits. That would be my request to any listener. And I will say as a listener, uh, this is how I listen to things in general. I like to Google and, you know, do my own like fact checking as I listen to anything that's supposed to be nonfiction. And yeah, I can say it. I would tell people to definitely Google while, while you listen, because I do think you do a pretty thorough job of, you know, uh, you know, saying stuff that is totally verifiable and able to be checked. And one last thing I'm going to do, this is not a question, but just something that I wanted to say. In in general, when we do these things, we don't want to make the person over-explain what is in the thing that we're talking about, because I don't want people to feel like you can just listen to an episode of Champagne Sharks and it's like a, a Cliff Notes or <laughs> abbreviated version of, of the thing. So I deliberately didn't you know, get into the weeds and a lot of stuff, because I want people to feel that they have to go and check this out. But I will give like a laundry list of things that, you know, really jumped out at me that, that I liked. And if at any point you want to interject at, at something, it's totally fine. You don't have to wait for me to just go through this list, but um, your history of Bernie Sanders, and I didn't know you knew him that long and the story of almost getting fired. That's, that's in there. I thought it was a great story. That's where I got all my gray hair. (laughs) (laughs) You talk about TARP, Obama, the bank, bonuses, subprime mortgages, and how Black people were targeted, how it was almost an extinction-level event for uh, Black middle-class growth and wealth, Bankruptcy Act 2005, explanation of cram-down, explanation of the concept of ideological capture, stimulus bill and the foreclosure crisis, how badly cram-down concept hurt banks and why and how they had to shut down from ever happening, how Obama and his people quietly worked against the cram down behind the scenes and why uh, 
The excuses Obama's people gave for the lack of push for cram down. Robo signers, that was insane. Uh, insane. Tim Geithner and the HAMP program. Elizabeth Warner, Elizabeth Warren and Geithner going um, head to head and formed the runway for the banks and flattened the curve. Uh, you have to watch. I'm listening to hear what those are about, but that was my jaw dropped on that. Uh, it's awful. Fall, yeah. Everyone, everyone listening to this, keep in your mind. I'm not going to explain it. You have to listen to the podcast. Foam the runway. Trust me. Yeah, yeah, it's it's worth getting to and, and waiting for. Uh, Elliot Spitzer um, makes an appearance. That was uh, a name I haven't thought about in a while, and that that was great. Uh, who owned the problems of the financial crisis? Uh, the four things that uh, people that investigators ended up. Um, Blaming as the biggest problems, you know, for the subprime mortgage, AIG bailout and Goldman. I almost uh, puked when I heard about the 13 billion. Yep. Uh, there's a key part, 100 cents on the dollar. Uh, you'll know it when you get to it. It uh, made me want to throw uh, my headphones against the wall. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, how Goldman managed to actually profit from the uh, subprime mortgage by betting against their own their own investments, which is almost like a breach of not almost is a breach of fiduciary duty to our clients if anything it's it's incredible um bad government oversight psi um the response to being presented with an email uh where they said that it was a shitty deal what a goldman person uh responded you know which was um amazing but they pretty much were unrepentant even in congressional investigation lobbyists too big to fail brown kaufman glass eagle Dodd Frank, it's the revolving door between Wall Street and government, Tea Party, Glenn Beck, DNC's inability to still have a populist touch, Ron, jo- Ron Johnson versus Russ Feingold, how the Tea Party backfired for the Republicans, and the interview with Obama that, if I understand right, has never been uh, released publicly before, right? That mm-hmm. audio? That's right. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Uh, giving Democrats giving back TARP, basically, and you know, and where we stand now. So, yeah, I mean, that's all the stuff that you can expect to. It was uh, a huge project, man. I mean, yeah. it, it really, it really, but the, and I will tell you the, the hardest part of the, of the, of the project was taking what happened and boiling it down to its essence. Cause it's such a giant story. So that was the big, the big, one of the big struggles of actually getting this done was to how to, how to bring it all into focus. I'm really proud of what, of what we did, but I will tell you that was a real struggle. Yeah, and it's structured very coherently and in a very linear, understandable, understandable way. And I just read that list to let people know if you have listened to this podcast, I don't want you to think that you have actually gotten most of what's in there at all. It's just barely touched the surface. But what I will say as a final thing, a uh, final question, can you just tell people how they can they can hear it? Do you just get an Audible membership? Do you have to spend money on top of the Audible membership? What uh, if someone wants to listen to it? Um, when can they listen to it and how? Sure. So it comes out on um, October 28th. It is available on Audible. Audible has, uh, if you're not an Audible member, it's got a free trial uh, period where you can listen to it then. If you are an Audible member, it is available to you on uh, October 28th. Uh, we, I'm going to have some, I guess, surrounding writing uh, about some of the themes in the podcast that kind of bring draws it out in written form uh, at the Daily Poster, which people can find at dailyposter.com. Uh, so stay tuned for that. Uh, so yeah, that's that's the way to get it. 
Great, great. Thanks for joining us. It's been a pleasure. And yeah, look, if you ever want to promote anything again, you're welcome to come on here. I really enjoyed this. Thank you so much. And I should I should add, thank you for the great questions. They were really, um, really well informed and they were really thoughtful. And I and I I really appreciate it because they were they were really good questions. Thanks so much. Oh, great. I'm glad you enjoyed it. All right. So yeah, everyone out there, check it out. And yeah, David, have a good one. You too. Thank you.